Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here. Welcome to The Daily Evolver. This week, I want to talk about what I think is one of our favorite lowest common denominator topics, and that is the topic of sex. And there's nothing wrong with lowest common denominator. It just means that it's something that everybody's interested in. Some people are interested in golf. Some people are interested in history. But everybody's interested in the weather. <laughs> and almost everybody is interested in sex. And I think sex is extra interesting from an integral perspective because sex evolves. The way we do sex now is different, aside from the obvious mechanics in a certain way. But the interior quadrants, the the way we think about it, the way we hold it, the way we relate to other people sexually, its role in our culture and society is very different and changing really in real time. It's, it's, it's amazing to actually see it change. And that's what brought this topic up to me is that I am a big fan of a show that actually features a good bit of sex. It's a show that runs every summer in the U.S. Actually, it runs all over the world for three months each summer from July through September. And it's called Big Brother. And it's one of the original reality shows. It started back in Holland, I think, in the late 90s. And the premise is very simple, and this is why I like it. It's a Petri dish for the human condition. They put 14 people, and, you know, most of them are young and beautiful and look good in a swimsuit. Uh, you know, it has a lot of sex appeal going on. Uh, and they go into this house where they live together for three months, and they have one thing to do. There's no media, there's no computers, there's no connection or communication with the outside world. And these people are in there, and their one job is to each week kick one of their members out. So that's what they're busy with, often 24 hours a day, plotting and scheming and making friends and making alliances, and making enemies and deceiving each other and sometimes being loyal and heroic and self-sacrificing. And it really is just interesting to see this human condition laid bare. I, I can't imagine any intrigue would be more interesting and convoluted in the courts of Louis XVI or the campfires of Genghis Khan, that kind of thing. Now, the trick of the show and why it's called Big Brother is that these people are under 100% surveillance 24 hours a day. The house is equipped with hundreds of cameras. There's no place they can go where they can't be seen. And they wear a microphone 24 hours a day. So all of the plotting and scheming and all of the machinations of this, you know, intensified, heightened we space is available to us. So it's really a, you know, a great study in sociology and anthropology, even psychology. And uh, I think it's one of the reasons it's so popular. And, you know, ultimately a good thing. And, and I, I want to take this moment to give two cheers for reality television, which is an art form. And it is an art form that doesn't get enough respect. I, I hear people say about Big Brother and my obsession with Big Brother that, you know, these people, they know they're on TV. They're, you know, they're mugging. They're making it up as they go along. Well, okay, that's true. Um, actually, I do think, and I think it's obvious if you watch the show, that people do at 
some points forget about the camera and so forth, but granted that they are on, on camera and they know it. Uh, it's still not scripted. It's not real life as if they wouldn't know the cameras are on, but so what? It's a new area that we can actually explore that does reveal something real and authentic about the human condition. And I think reality TV does that in general. I don't care whether it's Honey Boo Boo or the Kardashians or these shows about these people who are living these extreme lives, shows about little people and uh, co-joined twins and, uh, you know, hoarders. Uh, it's just remarkable the insight that we get into people through reality TV, which is one of the reasons it's such a popular and flourishing art form. So, okay, let's get to the sex part. One of the things that is also really interesting about Big Brother is that in the States, it's been on 16 years. So, uh, you know, it actually does show an evolution of our culture in the last decade and a half. And one of the, quote, scandalous aspects of Big Brother is that everybody shares the same bedrooms. There's three or four large bedrooms and this one bathroom. And I note that in the early years of this program, way back in the year 2000, the men and women naturally segregated. If two of them hooked up or snuggled, it was a big deal. They would make a big storyline about it. And over the years and subsequent seasons, things have got progressively looser. And now we have men and women cuddling all the time. And of course, the gay characters have come online and they're there most seasons. But this year, there's something that's new and, and actually sort of surprising to me. And that is this phenomena of straight men cuddling with each other. Uh, and there's really two instances going on. One is there is a gay character this year. And, and also sort of notably, he was never introduced as a gay character. His gayness is not an issue. It's just accepted he has pink hair and he's, you know, very flamboyant. But he's gotten to be very dear friends with this, you know, young straight guy who's um, uh, just they're enamored of each other. It's just it's just the most interesting thing. And they talk and they snuggle and, uh, you know, they spoon at night. And the straight guy's very matter of fact about it. He says, I'm straight. I'm only interested in women sexually, but I love gay people. And Frankie's so much fun and we really connect. And this was one of the ways that we enjoy each other. And that's that. And then last week, the two kind of alpha males won this Kentucky good old boy in camouflage and another, this young multicultural single dad from L.A. were talking about how lonely they were and, and how complicated it was to hook up with one of the girls in the house. And maybe they ought to just snuggle with each other. And I don't know whether they have or not. We'll see in tonight's episode. But it's just remarkable that this kind of emotional and, you know, physical slash sexual uh, fluidity is arising, uh, at least in the pop culture. And again, I know these guys are on television and know it, and they know that this will get them attention, but still that it's an option. 
Imagine Humphrey Bogart and Frank Sinatra deciding that they'd like to snuggle some night because the women were too complicated. But it is an option now. And this gives us a preview of what's next in terms of sexual evolution. And that is that just as homosexuality has become not such a big deal socially, it's apparently not such a big deal sexually either, at least not like it used to be. And this generation of young people, or at least a certain subculture of young people, who really don't want to see themselves in any category. They want to be more pansexual and open to different experiences is uh, a new evolute in a way, and it, it harkens back to previous stages in our history where we were far more sexually fluid. So how did we get to this place? Well, as an evolutionary, I always like the big picture answer, which is that you take a big mess of hydrogen and a little bit of helium and you leave it alone for 13.8 billion years. And you end up with our culture and Big Brother and straight men cuddling. In other words, the cosmos is a very creative place. In fact, you could say this is the basic nature of the cosmos, starting with the Big Bang, which was the ultimate creative act, created everything, including time and space. And we see that the nature of the cosmos is to evolve, to complexify. Subatomic particles turn into atoms, turn into molecules, eventually turn into cells. Now, this took a long time. If we use Carl Sagan's famous cosmic calendar, where he shows all of time, the 13.8 billion years that the cosmos has existed, as one year, one calendar year, life first appeared, cellular life appeared in mid-September. Now, this first life, these first cells were asexual. That is, they reproduced essentially clones of themselves. And this went on for 2 billion years until early November when another miracle happened that accelerated the creativity of the cosmos exponentially. And this was the evolutionary advent of sexual reproduction. Since then, the great flourishing of life, all plant life, all animal life virtually, is sexual in nature. And it doesn't appear at first glance to make sense. First of all, you only get to pass on 50% of your genes when you are reproducing sexually. And there's a lot of effort and energy that goes into sexual display and finding a mate. Think of flowers. Flowers are just the sexual organs of plants, which is something to reflect on the next time you put a bouquet on the dining room table. But it's true. And, and the, the tail of a peacock, uh, the antlers of uh, an elk, these are problematic. They're heavy. They take a lot of energy to grow. They slow you down running away from predators. They're harder to navigate the world with. And yet it's worth it because the uniqueness and novelty of sexually reproduced offspring, of offspring drawing from the genetic material of two individuals, male and female, just give the species as a whole that many more chances to prevail over viruses, other predators, 
all of which are also evolving, natural forces, drought. Uh, and so it's ultimately extremely productive. And this productivity and creativity is built into the cosmos. It's the nature of the cosmos itself. And we feel it in our own minds and bodies to this day. And I always think of a great excerpt from a poem, Song of Myself, by Walt Whitman, where he writes, Urge and urge and urge, always the procreant urge of the world. Out of the dimness, opposite equals advance. Always substance and increase, always sex, always a knit of identity, always distinction, always a breed of life. And it's this substance and increase, this breed of life, that integral theory sees as happening not just in the exteriors, the world of atoms and molecules and cells, things we can see and measure and touch, the world of form, but that this substance and increase, this breed of life, is happening in the interiors as, as well, um, and starting from the moment of the Big Bang and maybe before. But evolution is happening in the first person, that is, my ability to feel and be aware. Uh, that goes all the way down to subatomic particles in appropriate measure. And in second person, the world of the we, that my ability to be attracted by and to attract also goes all the way down to molecules and atoms and subatomic particles. And that this is actually a fuller understanding of the nature of the universe. And so a more complete discussion of human sexuality is likewise going to see that it happens in the third person. It happens with our bodies. It happens as instincts and physical urges. That sex happens in the second person. It's a main time-honored way of expressing love and connection, affiliation. And in first person, uh, explicitly so in the tantric traditions, it helps us to realize new territories of our own consciousness. And all of those have been evolving since moment one. Okay, so let's look at the history of human sexuality. And there's a lot of controversy about the dawning of sex, how it was in these early days of, you know, self-conscious human beings. And I think we can gain insight into the two schools of thought, actually, by looking one step further back to two of our closest primate relatives, the chimpanzees on one hand and the bonobos uh, on the other hand. And these are very genetically similar. In fact, the bonobos directly evolved from the chimps. But they're very, very different, particularly in terms of their sexual practices. Chimps are brutal. Uh, very patriarchal. The males dominate the females. Young male chimps can't really enter the world of the adult male unless they prove that they can dominate every female in the group. So it's not a great place to be a female. The bonobos, on the other hand, are all about making love, not war. 
And everything we've heard <laughs> about these bonobos is apparently true. They have a lot of sex. They have sex with themselves. They have sex with each other. The males have sex with males. Uh, they call it, it's, it's such a quaint term, penis fencing. And the females are, shall we say, scissor sisters. And so what's the difference here between these chimps and these bonobos? Again, almost genetically identical. Now, the chimps were first, and the chimps lived in the trees, and they lived by hunting, and so they favored the male in terms of food gathering. Chimps share their ecosystem with gorillas, and gorillas eat the ground cover, the stuff growing on the ground. And at some point, there was a drought. All of the ground cover was dried up. The gorillas left the ecosystem, and the rains came back, but the gorillas didn't. And into the new grassy undercover, undergrowth, the bonobos evolved. And this made all the difference. Why? Because it turns out that foraging is something that the females can do, and they can do in a group, and they bond. And when the females bond, the males can no longer terrorize them. And the whole first, second, and third person of the bonobo universe change, or the chimp universe, the brutal chimp universe, evolved into the bonobo universe. And female solidarity is deadly to the patriarchy. And I think we can see why in these patriarchal societies that are so resisting modernity that one of the things they're keen on doing is burning down girls' schools. So were early humans more chimp than Bonobo, I have no problem thinking that they were a good bit of both, depending on the life conditions, depending on the circumstances. Economics would seem to be a driver of a lot of this. In hunting societies, women have a lower status. In foraging societies, there's more equality. We know that women fared better in horticultural societies that used digging sticks than they did in agricultural societies, where to pull a plow behind an ox would cause miscarriages. And so the intelligence of the system, of the human system, is to grow. So are we going to grow faster with the women gathering food? Or are we going to grow faster with the men hunting and the women bearing children? This is a, a fairly obvious decision in the circumstances of life. And we see that human cultures organize themselves to maximize the uh, contribution of both men and women. And they do it, by the way, with the cooperation of both men and women. And it can be a brutal cooperation. I mean, it's not easy to think of women cooperating with being chattel, with being hidden and shrouded and bought and sold and traded and bread at will. But you don't hear of women's uprisings. I mean, this was just the way it was. And by the time we get through archaic culture and evolve through tribal culture into red warrior culture, uh, the patriarchy is well established. And by the way, if you're new to integral theory or want a little help as we walk through the stages of human development, you can go to my blog, dailyevolver.com, go to the Theory tab, 
and scroll down and you can see a couple charts that will help explain things. So now we're at the red warrior stage of development, which glorifies male power. Women are dominated, seen as vessels of pleasure, procreation. Oftentimes they're shrouded. We see this in the most conservative Muslim cultures to this day. And they're shrouded to protect them. Women accept this. Because at this stage of development, it's actually pre-moral in a way. And men are such stallions that uh, they can't control themselves. They're not expected to control themselves among or around a beautiful woman. And so she must be hidden away and, and protected by male relatives and literally covered. To ensure this, we have things like genital mutilation, female circumcision, female circumcision, which is seen as uh, removing the sexual desire of women. We have honor killings for women who stray or even women who are raped because the bloodline has been polluted. And the honor of the family, which is the power of the family, has been compromised. And the thing that's often shocking to those of us who are flying at a higher altitude and look at this is we see the women in the culture are actually all for this. They prepare their daughters for circumcision. They carry it out. They advocate for honor killings as much as the men do. And in the West, we see red alive and well in certain ethnic subcultures, in certain rural backward counties, and certainly in thug rap culture, where, you know, it's all about male dominance and bling and, and women are bitches and it's sex objects. Homosexuality also charts an interesting trajectory in these early stages of development. In archaic stages, it was acceptable as it was in the animal kingdom. As we moved into tribal culture, it was often codified into the social structure. We had, in American Indian tribes, often the third sex was accepted. Men who dressed as women, women who dressed as men, and performed kind of uncle and aunt functions in terms of the culture, which is evolutionarily potent. But as we move into red, it gets a little more complicated. In the early and even mid-red, uh, in warrior culture, homosexuality was accepted. Uh, clearly, men in war parties or hunting parties, uh, you know, men always manage to take pleasure with each other in the absence of women. We see this in prison culture. Uh, today. Uh, but as we move into more high red, uh, and I'm thinking of like Rome and Greece, these were still red in terms of their interior centers of gravity, uh, even though they had sometimes proto-modern knowledge and technology even. But in their interiors, uh, there was uh, certainly room for men to have sex with men. Now, it took on a power dynamic where we had the dominant and the receptive man, and the dominant man had more status in these relationships. But it did happen. But as we move into uh, traditionalism, where monotheism comes online, and really morality comes online for the first time in human history, and we're talking about the traditional amber altitude of development and spiral dynamics, this is the blue stage of development, then things change. And homosexuality 
becomes taboo. And this is where a lot of these most conservative Muslim cultures and African cultures are, where to be overtly homosexual in any way or be caught in any kind of homosexual liaison is to have committed an abomination against Almighty God and you must be executed in order to restore the honor and purity and masculine power of the culture. So now we're getting into the amber or traditional stage of development. And what does evolution do at this point with humanity? What does the erotic force of the cosmos do with this power of sex? It shuts it down. Sex becomes something to be ashamed of, to hide. It's a little bit sinful. I always love what Paul Begala said about his Catholic upbringing, where he said that we were taught that sex is a filthy, sinful act that we are to reserve for the person we love the most. And that's, you know, getting at what happens that actually moves humanity massively forward. It's a massive step towards acculturation and complexity that we civilize this sexual impulse and try our best to contain it within this new monogamous, lifelong monogamous union that is so valued at this traditional stage of development. And again, when we're talking about traditionalism, it's alive and well all over the world. Ken Wilber and Don Beck and experts in this area estimate that 70% of the world is traditional or earlier stages of development. You know, this is where we see the social conservatives in the U.S. It's still uh, sort of a baseline um, download evolutionarily that many of us feel in our own evolutionary structures, our own minds and bodies. And it also happens to us as individual human beings. I can remember it myself that when I was a little kid, we lived with my great-grandmother, and my mother would wash me in the kitchen sink. It was this big old-fashioned sink. My aunts and uncles would be around and her girlfriends, and I didn't care until one day I did care. I was three or four years old, and all of a sudden it was just not okay to be naked in front of my relatives. And I said no, and fortunately I had a mother who could hear that. And from that moment on, my baths and nudity became more private. Now, this dawning of modesty and the reining in of sexual impulses is often codified in the religious texts of the traditionalist religions, such as certainly Christianity. I mean, the, the whole story of Adam and Eve is that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So in other words, they became self-conscious. They moved out of this oceanic paradise into a subject-object relationship with reality or with nature, which saw that some things were going to help them, some things were going to hurt them, and they were suddenly charged with figuring this out in a whole new complex way. And it's interesting. I've always been sort of fascinated by this idea that God really didn't want them to do this. And, of course, this is a fable, and it points to this sort of tragedy of waking up out of paradise. 
that begins this whole human journey, this whole existential dilemma of being a living creature in a world where you know you're going to die. And that is the crux of the existential dilemma for human beings. And the symbol of this awakening was this shame of being naked, which overcame Adam and Eve. They made little fig leaf aprons, and they hid themselves from God. And in fact, God was walking through the Garden of Eden one day and calling for them, and they weren't coming forth. And when he asked them why, they said, it's because we're naked and we're ashamed. And he said, did you eat of that tree? And that's when Adam threw Eve under the bus and Eve threw the snake under the bus. And, um, you know, the whole ball gets rolling here. And we also see the civilization of this sexual impulse in stories like the Ten Commandments, which actually codifies a new morality. And again, this is where morality comes online at this traditional stage of development. Uh, Warrior red has shame. Traditional amber has guilt. This is progress people. And so the news comes down through Moses from Almighty God that it's actually not okay to go and steal your neighbor's wife. You know, big news here. And this codifies a new society that is capable of far more complexity, more calories, greater lifespan, more security, more children, bigger organization of human beings under one jurisdiction. It's an enormous advance in human culture to civilize these sexual impulses. And we see this evolution in our individual development as well as individual human beings, that children that grow into a traditional stage of development, and we generally do this by six, seven, eight, are repulsed by sex. That's not true of children in archaic and tribal cultures where sex is far more you know, visible and it's just part of life. People are living in tents and caves. But as we develop, there's a new stage that comes online for us as individuals. And I remember myself, you know, when I my 12-year-old cousin told my 8-year-old self about the birds and the bees, it was like, are you kidding me? My mom and dad did that? Every couple, every parent of my friends did that, it's disgusting. Yep. And it's also an enormous achievement of human development. Welcome to traditionalism, the amber altitude of development, where we put sex in its place in this new emergent world space that just has so much more to offer. Now, so far we've been emphasizing the childish view of this emergence into amber. But there's an adult view, too. I mean, puberty, the the imperatives of biology come online in a way where we reorient our minds. Sex is okay within this container of marriage, which is a sacred creation of Almighty God. And within this, uh, sex can be quite hot, actually. It's okay. Uh, Women are, you know, 
males are still dominant in the traditional stage of development, but women are not necessarily dominated. And they are encouraged, uh, particularly in a healthy amber couple, the women are encouraged to be full-on sexual beings. And that's why we see surveys that show that conservatives have hotter sex than liberals. <laughs> and I remember reading an article oh, a few years ago uh, written by a woman who had moved from her modern life in New York City as a single girl to be with a man she fell in love with who lived in a very traditional Jewish settlement in Israel where the women kept their hair under wraps and wore long dresses. And, you know, sex was very repressed by modern standards. But she talked about in the evening when they would light the candles in the room and take a bath together and she would let down her hair and just the heat that was generated by this sacred act of sex, which they saw as, you know, a, a, a manifestation of the power of God in their lives. It was very, very hot by any standard. And that's very difficult to achieve that sort of thing in a post-traditional setting. And so as integralists, we want to notice that because as integralists, we want to create a world where the best of all of these stages can come back online. So there is this, you know, crucible of intimacy that is enchanted by the love of God that creates a sexual expression that is uniquely delicious. Now let's look at another dimension of this traditionalist sexuality that is important even in our times. And that is this idea of enchantment and that the marital container is a sacrament of God and that it is holy and that the fruits of this union, children, are a gift from God. And of course, procreation at this stage is very important. This is how humanity is moving forward and growing. And so the idea of rejecting a life that would be sparked by God would be really unimaginable. The, that's why birth control at this stage of development is you know, often criminalized. It was in the United States until the early 20th century. And abortion, of course. I mean, that you would end the life of this creation of God is not only a sin, personally, but a sin and a stain on any culture that allows it. And thus you get the mindset of these pro-life people who are so passionate about their view. Most topical, of course, is the Supreme Court decision in, in the U.S. a couple weeks ago, or last week, where the company Hobby Lobby was found to be within their rights to refuse this one stipulation of Obamacare that required them to offer all of these birth control methods to their female employees. And there were, I think, four out of 12 or 15 types of contraception that they objected to because they were what they call abortifactants. That is, they dislodge or kill 
a fertilized egg. So, of course, this is one of the great battles of the culture wars, as is homosexuality. And, of course, in the amber or traditionalist altitude, homosexuality is still not acceptable. You're not hunted down or criminalized, but you're definitely ostracized. It's, nobody really wants you around. And uh, so most gay people remain closeted and try to live straight lives as best they can which, of course, we see now is the source of a lot of human suffering. Okay, so let's move now to the next altitude of development, the orange modern altitude of development. And, of course, this came online three, four hundred years ago with this scientific revolution and the Enlightenment and the idea of the rights of man and democracy and so forth. And this, too, brings on a whole new world space of gender and sexual relations. And I think it's probably a good time to point out that in integral theory, we don't talk about people jumping from one stage to the other. We work our way there. And we work our way there in multiple intelligences or multiple lines of development. And people develop in many lines. We develop emotionally, cognitively, spiritually, in terms of our values, our morality. And we can be at one stage of development in one line and in another stage of development in another line. And this is typically how people move into modernity. Uh, they find that this, they can think scientifically, they can use modern technology, but oftentimes their values are still in traditionalism. And that's how it works often. And so we have a stage of development, it's very much online now, where people are basically modern, but they haven't totally given up the religion of their childhood and the rituals and so forth. And there's a little bit of a mix-up uh, in terms of sexual identity and practice and so forth. The main thing, however, that does come online is female equality, at least legally at this point. So we have women voting. We have birth control and con contraception. We have... Women choosing their own partners, not being married off, uh, also choosing if they wish to divorce. Now, as all of this may be tremendously liberating for women, it can be very threatening for men, particularly men who still have a, a value system that is centered in the traditional stage of development. And we see this in the world. It's a cause of a lot of consternation, particularly in these conservative cultures where the idea of women having a choice, asserting themselves, being able to come and go, to leave, to divorce, just uproots everything you think you know about how life's supposed to be. And it's very threatening uh, to both men and women, conservatives. And we can see the, the, the blowback that we have, particularly in these Muslim cultures. Think of Egypt where the Arab Spring brings on these young modernists. And no, not so fast. The traditionalists uh, reassert themselves, uh, particularly when the dictator's gone, who kept the lid on the whole game for. And we see this in our culture as well. One of the great arch enemies of the conservative right, Rush Limbaugh and the like, is this woman, Sandra Fluke, who in 2012 had the temerity to testify before Congress that the health care law ought to have a contraception mandate, cover birth control. 
and she's a single woman. And so Sandra Fluke is now code for these pushy women, these single women who are out exercising female choice. And remember, female choice was a big part of Darwin's theory of evolution, right up there with male competition survival of the fittest. And to this day, it's not emphasized in evolutionary theory. And PBS, in their series Evolution, theorized that it was because the men of uh, Darwin's time, the male scientists of his time, literally couldn't hear this idea of female choice because the females in their world didn't have any choice, particularly in procreation. But at any rate, we see, even with this uh, polarity between chimps and bonobos, the tremendous power of female choice and what it brings to a culture. And it has indeed done that, or at least it's co-arisen with a great pacification of humanity in modernity. I mean, we tend to think of modernity as a murderous time, and it is, because still a lot of interiors are, are traditional. But the modern interior is fundamentally peaceful. And I've done lots of talks on this, and it's you know another topic for another time. But uh, this female choice is a hugely important leap of development in terms of uh, human evolution for many, many reasons that aren't obvious when we just think about it sexually or gender terms. And in terms of homosexuality, the orange altitude modernity is the home of don't ask, don't tell. You can be gay, just don't, as they say, shove it down my throat. I'll leave it at that. Okay, so now we're working our way into the next altitude of development, post-modernity, the green altitude. And I think that the key thing that happens here is that the, the presence of women uh, and the, the, the integration of women fully into the culture moves from being just in the exteriors, that is the legal rights and so forth, to a full interior integration where the female perspective is valued on its own terms. And there's an insistence that the female perspective be online in any circumstance. And, and we have a name for this idea, and, and it's feminism. And feminism is one of the great, great achievements of postmodernity, the green altitude. And of course, with this dawning comes full-on female choice and the whole of the sexual revolution in general, which is exemplified by the famous lyric from the Crosby, Stills, and Nash song, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. And so this comes with a, a great rise of promiscuity. And, and in fact, really a new era of life dawns, this sort of post-adolescence, uh, late teen, early 20s, into mid-20s, where you're no longer expected to be married. And people at that age are having sex, whether they're married or not. It's one of the reasons people got married in their teens and earlier generations, to just be able to have an outlet for the generative force. So there's a whole new era of life where people get to experiment. And they don't just experiment with other partners. They experiment with different sexual acts 
Oral sex becomes standard procedure, even anal sex. Uh, in green, particularly, there's a draw to the previously taboo, to these forbidden territories. And I've often thought that one of the reasons that homosexuality is becoming more and more accepted is that homosexual or previously what we thought of just homosexual acts, oral and anal sex, are becoming accepted and have become accepted in mainstream heterosexual circles. And, you know, again, that's that interesting thing. I can even chart my own trajectory, as I talked about earlier, becoming ashamed of my nakedness as a little toddler and just learning about sex and, you know, the yuck factor of sex. And the yuck factor of sex, it continues in a way. So we can get it that there's missionary and then we can get it that there's doggy style and then we can get it that there's oral sex, but anal sex, not everybody makes it there, including 40% of gay men, incidentally. And while we're on the topic of gay people, at Green, gay people, of course, are celebrated, are brought actively into the fold because that's what Green does. Green wants to rehabilitate, bring back online the people who have been persecuted by the earlier stages of development. Now, there are some aspects of what's been unleashed by the sexual revolution that even baby boomers like me have mixed feelings about. There's this overt sexualization of the culture where you see young girls walking around like harlots, for heaven's sakes. And these, you know, music videos that Miley Cyrus dancing and holding her crotch. And, you know, of course, this proliferation that's almost jaw-dropping when you think about the social ramifications of it, of, of pornography, where the most outrageous scenes are enacted uh, a few clicks away on any computer by anybody. It's just remarkable. And there's, you know, a lot of negative effect from that. I've talked before about one of the most, in a way, touching aspects of collective self-help that I've seen are these communities on Reddit, this big social media site where young people, particularly both men and some women as well, uh, get together and support each other online uh, to free themselves from this porn addiction where they are literally unable to tear, often to tear themselves away from it and to function normally with uh, real partners. In green, we also see a rise in what we'd call transactional sex, uh, friends with benefits, uh, and also these social media apps like Grindr and Tinder, where you can literally leaf through people on your phone and see what their sexual proclivities are, uh, if they're available now and how far away they are. And if they're 100 yards away down at the next cafe, maybe you hook up and uh, so... You can see why <laughs> a lot of, you know, conservative cultures, uh, the Muslim cultures, most dramatically, don't see this as progress. They see this as regress. I mean, they've just managed to get their arms around. They're just civilizing their impulses in these early, particularly, you know, most conservative communities in Africa and so forth. They're just really consolidating amber. And a sexual revolution looks like a regression back to warrior. 
which is a stage of hedonism and barbarity, particularly towards women, that they're happy to be out of. It was hard fought to get out of that. And now you're asking them to accept what looks like the same thing? No way. They'll fight to the death on this one. And they are. So as we look at the evolution of human sexuality, we see, as is the cosmic habit in general, an ever-complexifying system, ever more capable, ever more flexible, can contain more, can see more. The resolution on the Google map reveals more to us. And this just continues, which leads us to the question of, so what's integral sex? Where are we now? Where are we headed? And I think integration is really a, a, a interesting thing to think about just from a theoretical point of view. And the role of men and women together really illuminate what we mean by integration. Even in our lifetimes, if you look at how men and women were in our grandparents' generation, you know, men were men and women were women, even up until the first part of the 20th century. And compare that generation to the younger generation. And you see a, a massive integration where the qualities that used to be ascribed only to men, um, ambition, working out in the public sphere, uh, being seen, having a public presence, being powerful, uh, making money. Women are expected to do this now. And also on the other side of the street, men become more nurturing, more in touch with their emotions, uh, more feminized in, in, a, in a positive way, in that they're able to access dimensions of humanity that uh, were not accessible to men at earlier stages of development. And this is true integration. Steve McIntosh, in his Institute for Cultural Evolution, uses this example to explain what he sees needs to happen with the left and the right, the two poles of the political spectra, in terms of a next integration. Where neither side dominates the other, as with men and women, but begin to take on the qualities that used to be exclusive to one or the other. Now, this integration of men and women has been happening really since modernity, as we talked about with legal status and through post-modernity with interior cultural status. But there's a new um, vividness that really arises in this integration as we move into integral. What sometimes happens in modern and particularly postmodern relationships is that men and women are so equal, and this is a good thing, that they can lose their polarity of the juice between the, 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 the pole of the masculine and the feminine in sex, in relationship in general. And at Integral, we begin to respect those differences in a deeper way. In fact, one of the easy ways that we can describe Integral is that it would take into account and, and seek to reclaim the best aspect of all previous stages. So we actually, as an integral couple, we want that tension and polarity between men and women that were part of the stuff of becoming human. And also we want to be in touch with that procreative force, uh, whether or not we're trying to get pregnant, but 
I always think of my friend Jennifer who told me that the best sex she ever had was when she was trying to get pregnant. And if you're in that wonderful position, enjoy it because, you know, it's fleeting. And in the gay world, it's not there at all. But we have still access to that procreate urge. And we want to feel, you know, this creative urge of the universe to manifest in our sexuality, no matter who we're doing it with or what we're doing. So, yes, we want to bring juicy biological and, and warrior energy to our sex lives. And we also want to look at what's the gifts of the traditional stage of development, where one is in a container, an enchanted container, created by the loving intelligence of the universe. We're really meant to be together, the two of us. And our lovemaking is an expression of the creator and the creative force itself. And, you know, to the degree that we can uh, at least take on as an aesthetic, uh, a mythic quality to that relationship uh, that just adds to the juice uh, and the power of what we're doing. We want the best of the modern world space where everybody's free. Nobody's dominated by anybody, at least not against their will, <laughs> which brings us to what do we want from the best of green? And that is we want the freedom to begin to investigate areas that were previously taboo, like, for instance, S&M, bondage and discipline, dominant submissive relationships. And there are a lot of people in the integral world who are working with this and having fun with this and doing it in, with an intentionality and a, and a spirit of exploration and fun that is really, I think, remarkable and doing it in a way that is safe and sane and, again, juicy. We see all sorts of experimentation going on at the leading edges of cultural development. Uh, there's a group here in Boulder called Orgasmic Yoga, which teaches in a group setting self-love, which is, looks like masturbation. It is, but it also is a way of touching in in the heart and 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 really working uh, psychologically and physically with one's interiors in a goal of acceptance and love for oneself. We see people who are experimenting with polyamory, where one has more than one intimate partner. And of course, all of the problems and, you know, there's a certain incendiary quality to that because it goes so against the grooves that have been cut uh, for the last several thousand years. Uh, but it's a worthy endeavor. And I think of a category that Dan Savage, who's one of the popular postmodern to integral sexual commentators, or he's a columnist, he has a podcast, where he talks about people being monogamous, that is, you know, completely committed to each other in a faithful container, but also that there's a category he calls monogamish, where you're mostly monogamous, you could create a container in terms of one's interiors and in terms of creating a life together and maybe a a space to raise children, but there's a little leeway when it comes to uh, 
a physical relationship with people outside of that container. And of course, we continue to see the march of progress technologically as well with the advent of the charmingly named world of teledildonics, which is uh, the wonderful world of social sex toys, uh, which is an article in Gizmodo about that not long ago, where there's a best, basically sex toys which can be controlled by somebody from a remote location and you can connect on Skype and, you know, progress, right? <laughs> and, you know, I can look at all this. I'm 60 years old and I think, oh, I don't know about teledildonics and uh, I don't know about a lot of this. But that's the point. At Integral, we don't have to be involved in any one thing. We can create a a sexual life that is appropriate just to us, pulling from all of these different grooves and strands of sexual experience that have been pioneered over the you know whole of of human history, including a choice that many people are making now that is radical in its own way, and that is asexuality. And sometimes these are older people who are just you know. They're done. They're, they're ready to be in a, uh, another frame of mind in, in their older age. And some of them are young people. There are communities on the internet of young people who just aren't interested in sex. And it's remarkable. They really aren't. And they're, you know, asserting their identity. And this is good too. So with integral sexuality, as with integral anything, everything's on the table. Everything is available to us in a new way. It's a fun new field to be playing in. And um, I I did a a similar talk uh, for a live audience the other night by phone. And I asked the audience to vote on a scale of one to five where they thought they were in terms of their sexual intelligence, uh, this line of the new line of development that we're identifying here. And I read something from a book by Marty Klein, who's a sex therapist. Uh, The book's entitled Sexual Intelligence. And he talks about uh, sexual intelligence equals information plus emotional skills plus body awareness, which is basically a good uh, understanding of first, second, and third person. And uh, he writes, we are born sensuous. We become erotic. To cultivate the erotic is also to engage with sexuality as a quality of aliveness and vitality that extend beyond a mere repertoire of sexual techniques. We learn to play, be curious, engage with our imagination, anticipate. Erotic intelligence is our ability to bring novelty to the enduring, mystery to the familiar, and surprise to the known. I think that's as good a definition of cutting-edge, integral, if you will, sexuality that, that I can come up with. So where did our integral audience place themselves on the one to five scale? Okay, 9% one. Uh, You're just really not very sexually intelligent, 9%. 6% two. 18% said three. And almost over half, 58%, said four. Four on a, on a five scale for sexual intelligence. I thought that was pretty good. And then there's always the top group, 9% who gave themselves a five out of five. So, (laughs) may we all 
enjoy this new evolution of this, you know, so critical, so central part of our lives together. Okay, so that's my overview of sex and integral sex. And um, as always, it's just wonderful being with you. So I'm signing off. This is Jeff Salzman for The Daily Evolver. See you next week.